Asked Brian Hanley how his family weaving business, John Hanley and Company, got started in Tipperary, and the answer is a slice of Irish history. We can go back to somewhere around the mid-1800s with the family weaving in different parts of the county. By the time the year 1890 rolled around, Ireland's land war was in full swing. We've talked about this period before on the podcast. It saw a campaign of resistance to the exploitation of tenant farmers by landlords that led to massive redistribution of land. When the Hanley Weavers of Lacken were issued with an eviction notice in the midst of it, the founder of the Land League, Michael Davitt, saw an opportunity. They were kicked out, essentially, of the premises that they were in there. So there was quite a big hoo-ha. Michael Davitt, who was one of the chief organisers of that movement, used the eviction, the movement of the machinery as a kind of a demonstration. Local people from Lacken helped move the machinery halfway and people from this area went the other half to meet them and bring them back. As the decades rolled on, John Hanley weavers grew in strength. Hanley Fabrics furnished the drapery shops of Killarney and Macroom and were soon being shipped to the gentlemen's tailors of Italy and London. But modern times didn't always bring prosperity. When this country was going through that terrible uh, phase that they called the Celtic Tiger, 2004 and onwards, we found those quite difficult years. It was a struggle in some ways to keep going. The whole country was on an upward curve, but we were going in the opposite direction. And I suppose you start to doubt yourself and you wonder, like, are you in the right game and should you be doing what you're doing? Textile manufacturing in Western Europe aren't two phrases that really go together. Everybody is producing in China. Everybody's producing in Vietnam. Low-cost countries make it cheap, sell it high. That's what the whole model was, and that's what was happening. And it's, it's hard to compete with that. But for whatever reason, sometime around that period of time, Made in Ireland became really important. And people started recognizing it for being a quality brand and to be genuinely made in Ireland. Like we have a factory, we have machinery, we have skilled people doing it. There aren't an awful lot of places that can say that. Blankets, scarves, waistcoats, traditional flat caps. If you'd like a piece of Irish history and craftsmanship right from the heartlands of Tipperary, well, you know where to go. Head on over to biddymurphy.com, the kind sponsors of the Irish Passport podcast and specialists in beautiful quality products that are genuinely made in Ireland. For now, let's get on with the podcast. Hello, Ooh. welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. and welcome back listeners to the Irish Passport Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that we planned since the very beginning of this podcast. 
the travelling community, an indigenous ethnic minority in Ireland whose unique and profoundly important role in Irish history and identity has long been overlooked. Now, lots of our international listeners might not know very much about the travelling community in Ireland, but as you say, Naomi, they are a central feature of Irish history, culture and politics. For the most part, this has gone very much underappreciated. Historically, travellers have faced huge discrimination and continue to do so today. Uh, Later on, we'll have an interview with the filmmaker and actor John Connors, who says this. It was state policy to assimilate travellers and eradicate the tinker culture. Politicians suggested things like... um, uh, sterilise them and castrate them and put them out on an island and lo- tag them and later on, even in the 80s, tag them like dogs. We'll also hear from feminist activist and education worker Eileen Flynn, who tells us this. I'm a traveller woman and I'm, I'm not just an activist for the community as a whole. I'm going to be that activist that fights for traveller women. I now work in the National Traveller Women's Forum and, you know, I love it to bits. And we'll hear from Julia O'Reilly. She spoke to us about the issue of literacy, something she overcame herself as a child after segregated schooling left her lagging behind her peers. This fueled her desire to take on the education system by going in to local politics. There is grants there um, uh, and support grants, uh, grants and they always have been there but were they used appropriately and properly would be my question to really look at because this doesn't just come from nowhere. Travellers have been a part of Irish culture going back hundreds of years. Nobody really knows exactly how long, but it's been a long time. Uh, in the Irish language, they're sometimes known as the Lucht Schul, which means the walking people. They're also known as the Minkair or the Pavi. Uh, this is a community with its own language, its own traditions, and a very strong sense of identity. But despite all this, a lot of settled Irish people know very little about their way of life. Statistics vary, but according to the 2016 census, there's something in the region of 35,000 members of the travelling community on the island of Ireland, so about equivalent to the population of a typical large town. But this population is broken up into countless small groups. The word traveller can be misleading. The traditional image of a traveller family would have been a group who travelled around the country in a wooden wagon. Nowadays, of course, many live in caravans and mobile homes, sometimes moving, sometimes fixed in one place, perhaps in a council-designated halting site. And of course, many travellers live in houses and apartments. We'll hear from our guests later on about the rich history of this community and how their culture and traditions in many ways preserve ancient ways of life from long ago in Ireland. Uh, But this heritage can sometimes clash with the majority norms and expectations of life in present-day Ireland. In fact, for much of its history, the Irish state's policy has essentially been to try and stop travellers from being travellers, tending to view their way of life as an incorrect or deviation from from the norm. Uh, It's a pretty bitter history at times, especially given that many travellers fought in the struggle for Irish independence. These policies and the assumptions behind them have contributed to the deep marginalisation and stigmatisation of travellers that's very prevalent in Irish society. They're physically marginalised, forced by laws and regulations to occupy marginal spaces, often on the edges of towns and cities, sometimes with really appalling provision of basic services like toilets and water, as we'll hear later. Traveller children are frequently treated differently in school, sometimes segregated, And whatever social issues Ireland has, from mental health to unemployment to lack of housing, it tends to hit travellers first and hit them hardest. And all of this is reflected in a very real way by poverty, social problems and a life expectancy that is shockingly lower than the general population. For a country that loves history, the history of travellers is something of an unspoken one in Ireland. So let's hear from our first guest, a man who has done a lot to change that very thing. 
John Connors is an actor and screenwriter. He wrote Cardboard Gangsters, the most popular film in the Irish box office of 2017. And he's also a documentary filmmaker and has made a series on traveller history for the National Broadcaster RTE. I met John on a beautiful site where he and his wider family live in North Dublin, in homes surrounded by tumbling wildflowers and painted with traditional imagery from the history of the travelling community, like wagon wheels. I asked him, first of all, to tell us in his own words, what is a traveller? Well, the thing is about it, the word traveller doesn't encompass who we are, actually. It doesn't do us any justice because it's just about being, that's just about being nomadic, which really nomadism was more of a, a vehicle and a protection for our culture, which is essentially Gaelic Irish culture. And a lot of our, like even now you're in my camp, right, where all my extended family is. And that's just the ancient Tua clan culture. That's what it is, you know. And usually Tua's would have travelled and been semi-nomadic back in the day. Um, well, we're travellers today, I suppose, we're survivalists. Um, I think I think the Irish Free State Government has probably had a better dig in us than the, than the British did in ways, um, because we were still pretty nomadic, you know, up, you know, under British rule, and then nomadic up until around the maybe 50s and 60s in Ireland, and then various different laws and policies were brought in to stop that, to stop us from travelling. And today, we're still, yeah, we're just a survivalist people who are holding on to some parts of Gaelic Ireland, and travellers wouldn't be conscious of that, like they wouldn't be uh, relating us to Gaelic Ireland, they just are who they are. Um, I suppose me now, looking in objectively uh, for the past few years and making documentaries about this stuff and looking at actually who we are, wh- where does our identity come from, that's the conclusion I've come to, you know. Uh, we carry so many different traditions and, and customs, uh, customs and even language and even English the way we speak and there's so many different things going on there that we've just carried on. What I was totally unprepared for before I spoke to John was the romance that traveller life can hold. He wove a really vivid picture of a childhood running totally free and being told stories of traditional wagon life by his grandmother. To be honest with you, for us it was like being in a time machine because she'd be telling you the stories of being in the wagon and being on the road and coming down to this little place where there'd be no electric, no, like, nothing. This is, like, 1950 in rural Ireland and, you know, coming across a banshee and all. She'd be telling you these kind of stories, you know. And, you know, the boys would stay out in the tents and the girls would stay in the wagon and, and you know, they'd camp up for a night and, you know, they'd tell you all the different interactions they would have with locals and people they met along the way and interesting people. And you were just basically in a time machine when you were when you were in that wagon, you know. And even just staying in the camp in general in a trailer with a tin roof, when the rain comes down, it's, brilliant. it's beautiful. Like, it's hypnotic, you just go to sleep, you know. She'd tell you, tell you stories that are clearly made up. We'd believe them at the time, like, you know. And then she'd, like, like we were convinced till we were about 13, 14, and my grandmother was a witch, you know. That's what she told us. Like, and I may remember, like, uh, me and my little brother was kind of giving me mother cheek, and um, my mother, God help her nerves very bad the kind of few years after my father died. And we were just little cheeky little bastards. And my grandmother didn't come in to kind of fix us one, one night. And she came in with those really intense eyes, and her eyes are bulging out of her head, and she said, sit down there now. You know I'm a witch. We're like, Granny, please, stop. I said, no, shush now. Let me tell you a story. And then she proceeded to tell us a story while she was smoking this cigarette, but not dipping the ash whatsoever. So she smoked it to the very end. I said, only a witch can do that. I said, I got these little boys who were messing with their mommy and I chopped them up in little bits and I put them in a black bag and threw them in the, in the liffy. And that was it, that we never gave her mother cheek ever again, you know. 
It became clear during our conversation just how much the history of the travellers is invisible in Ireland. There's little understanding of who travellers are and where they come from. Perhaps the most prevalent history about them is actually false, and it's something John managed to debunk in his RTE series. The, 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 we, the main narrative is we always come from the famine, okay? So we look through usually the archives and ask and settle people where the tall travellers came from, and this would have been in around 1910 to 15 to 20 to 1925, in around those times, and various different people. The most common um, answer was that they derived from, uh, from the hikings of Ireland, that the famine thing wasn't really a thing, you know? Now, where the famine thing came from was, during the famine, uh, travellers were so self-sufficient, you would have had a lot of settler women who ended up going on with traveller men, because they were able to survive on the land, and they weren't... Um, were relying on the crops as much because they were basically essentially hunter gatherers still at that time. Travellers were so that was you had a lot of intermarriage between traveller and settlement. And I see that in my own family history during that time. But the famine myth got pushed big time by politicians in the 50s and 60s to um, justify the assimilation policies. So then you're just resettling someone who's already been settled and they've just been little vagabonds and you know bums and we're just trying to help them. As opposed to our people who were... Um, part of the culture, yeah, yeah, part yeah, yeah. of the nation. So, yeah. Yeah. so we figured out that we did the DNA tests. And that was kind of the really important factor in figuring out origin. So we did the DNA tests. And we seen that the split has been between 500 to 2,000 years ago. And most times it's 500 years. So we said 500 years. And in around that time, what was the big significant events that happened in Ireland? And there was the reconquest of Ireland. Okay? And martial law was brought in for nine nine decades, and a big part of martial law was um, at that time was settling people so they could sit down, say, stay in one place and pay taxes, right? And at that time, two thirds of the Irish population were nomadic or semi-nomadic, right? We were called the Wandering Irish by the British and people all across Europe. And we had that tradition of being nomadic all across Ireland for centuries and centuries. So. The DNA split kind of figured out that time that when the Marsh Law was brought in, large amounts of people started to settle, large amounts of people were slaughtered. And that nomadic group of Irish people got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until they identified as traveller people, thinkers and travellers, you know. So that's kind of the origin that comes from the reconquest of Ireland. It's really interesting what John said there about the myth that travellers appeared during the famine. You know, like, I don't know about you, Naomi, but that's something I was personally taught at school and remember even thinking at the time that it sounded highly unlikely. So, Tim, did you challenge your teacher? D- did I challenge her? Oh, no, I, I don't think I wouldn't have dared to contradict that particular teacher. I don't remember being taught about travellers at all uh, as people who came, got, took to the roads during the famine or otherwise. You bring up an interesting point. There was very, very little um, that was taught about travellers. And that made that fact even more, it, it stood out even more at the time. Like, um, it didn't make sense. Uh, the famine is not that long ago. A lot of great-grandparents of people in our generation would have remembered it. Um, you know, so it didn't, even to a child, it didn't seem like a feasible explanation for, for a whole culture, you know, that could have sprung up in, in, in three generations. Um, but I suppose the teachers just didn't know better. Uh, and to be fair, we all got taught a lot of stuff that wasn't true. Um, but it actually says a lot in this context. Like, those teachers were teaching that same false information to traveller children too. And when you think about it like that, you know, it's pretty unforgivable. Something I found really interesting that uh, John spoke to me about was the traveller language. So it has different names. Sometimes it's known as shelter, sometimes gammon, and sometimes cant. 
And many Irish people won't be familiar with this language at all. Right, yeah, this is such a fascinating aspect of traveller culture. And I knew very little about this before I started researching for this episode. Um, What I've uh, found, um, and I might be wrong about this now because it's all very patchy, um, is that gammon was only documented by ethnologists uh, in the 1870s, which is very recently. Um, They gave it that name, Shelter. Um, And the first study of it was by an American folklorist called uh, Charles Leyland, and he claimed that he had found, I quote, the fifth Celtic tongue. But of course, by the time, you know, you get these historians speaking about it and documenting it, I mean, it was already very, very old already by that point, obviously. Yeah, sure. And nobody knows quite how old it is, but definitely much, much older than that. Um, People have theorised that it was originally a kind of slang within older versions of the Irish language. So that would mean that lots of it is probably much older than the Irish language as we know it. Um, It uses backslang as well, which you hear in Cockney rhyming slang in England or Verlon in in France, you know, um, this kind of uh, turning words back to front. So yeah, that's when you switch around the order of consonants. Like, um, so in English, the word boy would become yob, and in French, the word femme for woman becomes muff. Yeah, right, exactly. And that's common in, in loads of European languages. Anyway, this language evolved al- alongside Irish then, and it, it began to incorporate loads of English words when English came to Ireland, uh, mostly in the 19th century. And some of those words made their way back into Hiberno-English too. So in lots of Ireland, you'll hear the words fien or bure, and the people who use them often might not even realise they're using gammon vocabulary. Gammon or the cant, it depends what, it depends what, what like some travellers maybe from different regions of Ireland would call it the different the gammon or the cant. Yeah, there's a there's a connection there with the cant and coint talk in Irish, you know. And there are languages are very much like uh, very much connected. Like you'd even you'd have like uh, uh, Colleen, girl in Irish, and then we'd say Lackeen or Gossoon, Gossum. We'd say, and so there's loads that are very similar and other other words that are very different. There's loads of different areas, and I know there's a lot of words that predate the Irish language, you know, that we have in our language. So. I remember we used to speak it even a lot more when we were kids, up until the teenage years, and then we moved into Darndale, and you kind of become more integrated, and that's kind of a, that's a good thing, but it's kind of a shame as well, because you just stop using some words, you know, because it was coming through. Like, I remember at a certain point when I hit 13, 14, I'd be trying to find an English word, because we have certain words that there's no translation to, and then we have words that there might be 10 translations to, depending on the way you'd use it. And then there's kind of separate, there's the language, then there's a slang, which nearly every family have a slang. You know, nearly every traveller family would have a slang. But then there's also the way travellers would use English, and that's a different way as well, to use English in a different way. Like in any regular English word you could have, that we could use that in a different way, you know what I mean? Different context, it's weird, it's unusual. So there's kind of three different kind of ways of talking meshed into one. And really, if you were to see a group of travellers talking, you wouldn't really know what they're saying unless you knew the language or their talk a little bit, you know? Could you give me an idea of what it sounds like? Stall the wind and the the fiend is glowing on the bjor. What's that mean? I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. Bjor is that woman. Yeah. So like you, you hear like bjor and fiend, right? In Cork and Limerick and kind of the West Coast, you know? And even now they're starting to say it in, in uh, Dublin. And do you think that's kind of a, a slang, you know? That actually came from our language, you know? So it's kind of, my grandmother gets really annoyed at that, you know? Do you think it's just some random slang? Despite the richness of this culture, 
John told me about the really earnest attempt of successive Irish governments to essentially eradicate traveller culture through systemised integration schemes. For most of the 20th century, the Irish government did not regard traveller culture as a piece of Irish society that needed cherishing or protecting. On the contrary, it was seen as a problem that needed to be fixed. This is still reflected in current politics and the location of, for example, plans to build a halting site is for sure guaranteed to always cause a political crisis. Travellers just didn't fix the mould of what the quote-unquote proper Irish family was supposed to look like and a lot of people found this threatening. So over the generations, Irish governments have implemented pretty brutal policies one after another, leading to untold devastation for generations of travelling families. Do you think there was a systematic attempt to destroy traveller culture in the new Ireland? No, like, that's not even debatable. Like, it's facts. That is a fact, and it's not something that... Uh, like, you just look at the 1963 uh, report on itinerancy. So, Charlie High led that. And look at the objections. Like, the objections literally say that. So, our objective is to find a final solution to the itinerant problem and fully assimilate them into the settled community and absorb their culture. Right, these are the exact languages, and this was like twenty years after, uh, you know, World War Two. We're talking about finding a solution and all that. Like it, that was state policy. It was state policy to assimilate travellers and to eradicate the tinker culture and to save them from their itinerant habits. And even during that committee that they ran, people like politicians suggested things like um, uh, sterilise them and castrate them and put them out on an island and look, tag them. And later on, even in the eighties, tag them like dogs. Like there was, these were all the things that were contributing to that 1963 report. So that was state policy. That's not, there's no denying that. The government then bribed travellers to move, because uh, travellers mostly rural people, to move to Dublin. And if you were to move to Dublin, you can get a fraction of the dole of what settled people can get until you're settled for 18 months. And when you're settled for 18 months, you get the full dole, the same as what a settled person will get, or family will get. Look exactly where we are. We are the last, we're the very last stretch of a suburb. We're on the edge of town. So right face us is a motorway that takes you out and then there's a countryside there. So it's always the edge of towns. And there's always a divide between you and a settled person, always a field between you and a settled person. So when you grow up in that, I mean, that in itself and how that kind of seeps in mentally definitely, definitely doesn't do any good between both communities, you know. The state policy of cultural assimilation you know, was a feature of 19th and 20th century style nationalism that we saw all over Europe too. Um, until the 1960s, really, a lot of people you know, connected the idea of modernity with cultural homogenization within a nation state. And a lot of states you know, claimed that inducting or really forcing minority cultures into a common national culture was a liberating thing, something that w- could bring you up in life. Um, this is where uh, we get you know, standardized spelling, for instance, in in languages uh, being rolled out all over Europe. Uh, and the same reasoning originally lay behind the, uh, the oppression of lots of indigenous cultures in France or Spain or Italy. And at the base of all this, you know, when you look closely, you can really see that it's that difference. It's the difference in a language, say, or in a social ideal that is, you know, by the nation state, very easily seen as a threat to that nation's identity itself. It's all quite ironic, particularly in John's case. As he told me, his family was historically deeply involved with the Irish independence movement and the foundation of that very state. Uh, well, in my grandmother's family, um, she would have been one of the first travel activists. Her uncle, Joe Dunne, who was probably the first ever. He, him himself, Joe, was a, was a sniper in World War II. And then when he left that, he uh, went and moved to Donegal 
and joined the IRA. He would have had the, the Dubliners like Luke Kelly, Ronnie Drew, Manjo Barney, he'd have the Keenans, the Clancy's, the Furies, all over nearly every weekend he'd be over jamming. And he said, before they were famous, you know, he would have had them all over and he would have been a musician himself, you know, and great storyteller. And was he was, had an involvement in the blowing up of Nelson's Pillar. What, what's the story there? Yeah, well, he was apparently he was planned in his hut where he would have had a big tricolour. And again, he was he was one version of the IRA, whatever it was at that time. And this would have been before the Troubles, you know. So, yeah, that's, that was in the family. And then my grandfather, he is, he's like a mad history going back to like the 1798 Rebellion. Martin Ward, who would be my great, 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 great grandfather. Uh, he fought in Vinegar Hill. Health in the traveller community falls drastically below that of the settled population. In 2007, a report showed that, if you can believe this, over half of travellers do not live past the age of 39. And that's in comparison to the average life expectancy of 81 years in Ireland. God, Um, suicide is also a major issue, especially among traveller men. According to a 2010 report by the National Traveller Suicide Awareness Project, uh, traveller men are six times more likely to kill themselves than men in the settled community in Ireland, which is something else. Um, In 2017, the Irish Times interviewed a woman named Bridget Casey, who had lost no less than 12 members of her family to suicide, which is just horrific. John also lost his own father to suicide. And he mentioned this when I spoke to him. In my own community, it's an epidemic. Like 11% of travellers die by suicide. It's the highest suicide rate in the world per capita of any community alive. Uh, Higher than people in war-torn areas in Libya and, and, you know, Iraq and whatever. So it's an absolute emergency in my community, you know. And they're the suicides that are counted. I know there are so much more in my community that are not counted. I'd say it'd be more like 15%. That's what I'm saying. And a huge, that's like, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Like, you look at any people who are being oppressed, who are experiencing institutionalized racism, where racism is a part of a culture in that country where it's accepted, and even not accepted, you're going to have high suicide rates. I chatted to John for well over an hour, and we spoke about a huge range of things, including the culture of feuding, which I found particularly interesting to hear about. We'll publish the full interview on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Naomi, now maybe we should tackle the issue of discrimination here head on. Um, you know, it's something that raised its ugly head uh, very recently during the last presidential election in Ireland when a candidate um, who, you know, would otherwise have been forgotten about by now uh, called Peter Casey, he managed to turn himself from an electoral non-entity into coming in second place in that uh, election by targeting travellers and making it into a campaign issue. Uh, Here's a clip of Casey speaking to the Irish Independent podcast called The Floating Voter, if you want to give that a listen, uh, which started the whole controversy off. You know, I don't believe that travellers should be given special uh, status. You know, it's why should they be given status over and above yourself or myself? You know, they are seen as a a minority ethnicity. (sighs) That's a load of nonsense. You know, they're not Romaning, uh, Romani or whatever. You know, they're not they're not from Romani or they're not, you know, they're basically people that are camping on somebody else's land. You know, imagine the poor farmer whose land that they camped on, you know, and he, who'll buy the land from him? You know, the neighbours in the houses all around, do you think they're sitting there going, this is great for my property value because I've now got three dozen caravans down the road? You know, that's just wrong, you know, and... 
I think it needs to be, somebody needs to sit up and say this is nonsense. Once Casey made anti-traveller sentiment the defining issue of his campaign, he went from being an almost unknown candidate to getting 20% of the vote. He did that by using a very common populist rhetorical trick, which is speaking for the common man and supposedly only expressing what ordinary decent people really think. To me, it served as a kind of a test case that proved how discriminatory politics can really work in Ireland as long as you pick the right scapegoat. Mm, Right, absolutely. Um, And, you know, in Ireland, the simple fact is that if you live in the country, chances are you will have encountered a lot of negative stereotypes about travellers. And if you don't live in Ireland, it's pretty likely that this is the first attitude to travellers that you're going to encounter. Growing up in the country, anyway, uh, there was a prevailing attitude that travellers were generally up to no good, you know, no matter what they were doing. But what's more as well, what was really uh, tangible was that you would be hard pressed to find anyone who would ever challenge that received idea. You know, even the most liberal minded people in Ireland still today often harbour some really deep prejudices on this line. My experience has, has been that this is something of an quote unquote acceptable bias in Ireland. So you will often have Irish people who were impeccably kind of right on on every other issue. But on this one, they will defend anti-traveller views when they're challenged. That's my experience. I've also heard people express without any fear that they're going to be challenged or contradicted. Very violent and disturbing opinions about travellers. Like, for example, I've heard people say casually that travellers should have all their children taken away systematically to, to stamp the culture out or even that they should be burnt out of the town to make them move on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Like, that is true. You hear that. And in this year, this past year, the housing crisis and that presidential election kind of gave an excuse for some of that sentiment to come to the surface. Um, A lot of stuff that you mightn't have heard uh, for a while. Um, A lot of people expressed a lot of resentment against travellers who were thought to have asked for special council housing uh, because there is a nationwide crisis for everyone in housing right now. Um, Somebody challenged me recently about this when I mentioned that we were making the episode. Uh, They basically said that that ethnic minority status, you know, is all very well and good, but travellers who demanded special housing circumstances, um, or even asked for them during an accommodation crisis, were just expecting better treatment than everyone else, and therefore that ethnic status was a vector for inequality, basically. But in times of economic scarcity, with all of these existing grievances in place, perceptions like these can quickly become a hot-button issue. And as we saw in that presidential election, incorrect reports about travellers supposedly demanding special privileges can spread extremely quickly. Once the false information is out there, it's very difficult to retract it again. Hmm, Right, yeah. I mean, something I said in our live show uh, was, you know, when people are fighting over the crumbs that are thrown to them, you know, you can be sure that you got the wrong enemy there. Um, But, you know, that attitude as well, what struck me was that it shows... It kind of reveals an underlying disregard for traveller culture. It reveals that people don't take it seriously as a culture sometimes. Uh, Like, you know, this idea that ethnic minority status is fine until it actually means that measures can be taken to protect the culture it identifies, you know, until somebody has to compromise to protect that culture. Sadly, the generalised anti-traveller bias means that a lot of the stuff that visitors to the country might hear about the community is just, I mean, not true. And there's a lot of misunderstanding as well, because, of course, um, the housing policies of the state um, positioning halting sites, you know, on the edges of cities and towns kind of physically segregates people. And it's created a kind of enduring cultural and communication gap where, you know, 
traveller people and settled people just might not know each other very well. Yeah, right. I mean, that physical infrastructure creates a curious dynamic, doesn't it? Because it means that, like, you know, people will see travellers all the time, but very few people will get the chance to actually know a traveller properly, just quite literally, because they're on the other side of a motorway, let's say. And, you know, that's a situation where stereotypes can thrive very easily. Uh, sometimes the only experience someone might have with a traveller is a negative one, and that will reinforce existing stereotypes, and then they may never have a chance for those assumptions to be challenged. So, uh, like, it's also a very real way to uh, dismiss, I suppose, the, the actual social issues that are facing travellers today. Um, you know, a culture where stereotypes build up very easily and aren't challenged, that feeds into attitudes that, you know, sometimes the conditions that travellers live in or the things that travellers are dealing with are all of their own making, and that's the end of the story. We mentioned things like life expectancy and suicide rates, but the social inequalities that travellers face affect pretty much every aspect of life. It's also been reported, for example, that travellers suffer the highest levels of infant mortality among any ethnic group in Ireland, as well as being at the bottom of education tables. David Stanton, who's Minister of State at the Department of Justice and Equality, has claimed that only 13% of travellers complete second-level education in Ireland. Now, there's loads of factors behind all these statistics, and often it's a vicious circle. Um, Traveller education levels, for instance, have in many cases led to segregation of travellers in schools, as we heard, which in turn can often lead to very real educational needs being neglected. And then, of course, discriminatory treatment in schools only drives travellers further away a lot of the time from education, which can lead itself sometimes to even further segregatory measures. We went over me and my brother and we're like, all of a sudden we got put in this traveller class away from all the settled class that we're already in. We're like, why? That's our class, you know? So we got put in this traveller class. We're like, why are we in this traveller class? So they gave us huggy bear. And <laughs> I remember me and my brother, I think I was, what was I? I was nine, he was eight. I mean, they was just looking at each other and started laughing because we were obviously extremely bright. We were reading newspapers at two years of age, back to front, you know? And we as a teacher, come on, what's going on here? Like, this is huggy bear. Well, yeah, yeah. Would you be able to read that? I said, come on, we're reading this at Junior Infants. And everybody else has had crayons, and that was it, and that was the class. Another factor is the tradition of young marriage in travelling communities, which has lots of knock-on effects. According to the Central Statistics Office, just under 23% of travellers are already married between the ages of 15 and 24, uh, compared to 1.2% of the general population. Of course, marrying young has lots of implications, and particularly leaving school early. Right, and that sometimes ties in with the particular challenges faced by traveller women. A 2009 report published by the Women's Health Council claimed that traveller women are 30 times more likely to experience domestic violence than settled women in Ireland. Uh, It claimed that traveller women who only make up 0.5% of the population represent 15% of all gender-based violences. The experience of traveller women is something I spoke about recently with Eileen Flynn, Eileen is an activist and an education worker with the Traveller Movement. She had some fascinating things to say about her work. Let's have a listen. Hey, my name is Eileen Flynn. I'm a traveller woman from uh, Ballyfermot, Dublin. I am a traveller activist and in the last uh, three years have opened up my eyes to uh, feminism and what feminism means and equality like the equality for women and uh, for uh, travellers in general going back in 2012 I would have really opened up my eyes to uh, the levels of inequality that traveller women face on a daily basis you know like every other community uh, the men are the dominant group you know 
and for traveller women uh, like any woman I imagine that comes from a culture or an ethnic minority group uh, would go through similar challenges uh, as women you know because it's like uh, these cultures that's wrote but it must be written from men for women do you know what I mean where uh, women can't have sex before marriage can't drink before marriage have to behave in a certain way uh, can't move out of home before marriage all these uh, all this um, barriers put up to us women within uh, cultures. I know in my, my own culture for sure the, the, these are some of the barriers, you know. And it's very different for a, a traveller woman, say, to experience domestic violence, to come out as experienced domestic violence or getting the supports that, that she needs because there's this label that's on traveller men and not every single traveller man beats up women you know what I mean but if if, if you were to report a domestic violent then like you know it's actually labelled then all oh, them travellers again and them men are violent and stuff which is no such thing one out of five women in Ireland go through domestic violence you know and the traveller community are included in that figure you know and then a uh, young marriage so for a lot of women not having um, opportunity of success because of, the, of being getting married young you know and it's not a choice uh, a 15 year old child making a choice to get married should not be uh, be uh, be stood by from from parents or from society you know so uh, as, as a traveler woman I've kind of questioned that since uh, 2012. Eileen had the strange experience of having to come out as a feminist and as a feminist from a traveler background it's something she says that is hard to swallow for some travelers and some settled people too Traditionally, travellers have been seen as very conservative when it comes to women. They often have strong faith and the influence of Catholic Church is still pretty strong in many families. But Eileen, like many people in the last few years, said that she gradually became aware of the oppression that women like her were facing, in particular as the campaign to repeal the abortion ban was getting going. In 2012, I would have been a pro, an anti-choice traveller woman, you know, because it was always easier fighting for the life and for the rights of a child, if you want, you know. So this would be, you would have opposed abortion, right? Oh yeah, I would have, and that there is the truth. In uh, 2012, in 29, uh, in uh, 2009, I I remember uh, doing a... um, a debate in Trinity College and I would have been it's so easier to fight for for the rights of life and stuff you know however you know I wasn't educated back then I wasn't my eyes wasn't open to the world of the level of inequality that women have to go through you know so like a woman is pregnant when she says she's pregnant and want a baby if the woman doesn't want the pregnancy she's not having a baby and that's her choice and her right for a determination if she wants that determination, if that woman wants that abortion. And trust me, n- nobody knows the shoe is cutting them, only the person that's wearing them, you know? So feminism in Ireland, even though it started off originally from the working class women, you know, is it was always is, um, platforms, if you want, that was took over by upper class women. And now in Ireland, I think it's it's ethnic minority groups that's pushing their way through and say, excuse me, this is our spaces too. Uh, so 
2015 would have been a starting point in my years of feminism, if you want. Um, I stood up and gave a talk uh, uh, at the uh, pro-choice. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, was, I didn't know the words reproductive rights. I didn't know what reproductive rights meant. So it kept, took myself years just to question it and really understand it. So when I was ready in 2015, I stood up, yeah. And it's one of the hardest um, challenges I've ever been part of in my whole life and the backlash of that as well where you know um, you can be met post violence outside of your own community and within your own community you uh, um, can get graphic horrible messages and being called a baby killer, a man hater. I don't hate men. I I'm married to a Donegal settled man, and but it doesn't mean that I have to. I'm a I'm a man hater because I want equality for women. I'm a feminist. I if I think a man suffering inequality, I will be the first to there uh, to be there on his side, which I've worked with many traveller men in the past, uh, wanting um better health for traveller men. You know so. I get, and so many times we have to make everything about men, which absolutely kills me if you want, you know, even like women's rights. Oh, where's the men's rights? And it's just, you know, we need to stop making it about men and uh, focusing it around men and not being ashamed of saying, I'm a feminist and this what, this is what feminist is, you know, that kind of way. Yeah. So the, I'm, what I'm getting, what I'm picking up is that some people um, see that you can't both be a feminist and be like loyal to the traveller community, that it's some, some something of a betrayal uh, because of, like many people in the travelling community would have traditional views on things like um, abortion and um, th- marriage and things like that. So is it, is it very difficult for you to be an outspoken person like that? And, and what, what has been the reaction from your community? Yeah, it's been very extremely difficult for me. But how I, how, how I see life is that uh, my values... In, in the world is a uh, human rights and equality. However, when my human rights and equality is being affected by norms in cultural uh, society, in, in cultural like people put it down to cultural views, but it's not a cultural values. It's not a cultural value for for a woman to be treated less than a man. You know. So when 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 I feel that. Uh, women's values are at risk and women's equality and human rights is at risk well then we have to question our culture you know and yes hands up I've 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 had many difficult challenges within my own community and outside my own community come here you have to meet people where they're at and respect people where they're at and in the last uh, few years I've had many travelers that come up to me who've had had abortions I had many women who come up to me who is living their own lives and you know we're having great conversations and I can see that more to, more today than ever you know I'm a traveller woman and I'm I'm not just an activist for the community as a whole I'm going to be that activist that fights for traveller women I now work in the National Traveller Women's Forum and you know I love it to bits and being able to work with my own community is the best job in the world and women within my own community and so it is like it, it can be very challenging but yet Naomi it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life because in my house now we speak about Trump <laughs> uh, we speak around uh, same-sex marriage uh, we speak about politics and you know it wasn't there in 2012 but it's there today and yes it took years but we have them conversations now now don't get me wrong we still don't speak about periods or we don't speak about abortion or anything like that but look all in good time and it's on it's on its way if you want you know <coughs>
Ayn also made the really good point that the statistics that you see about travelers, infant mortality, low life expectancy, um, you know, they are not part of traveler culture, but they get treated that way sometimes. You know, this is something entirely apart, and it's often the direct result of appalling living conditions that are overseen by the state. As an example, Eileen mentioned the perennial problem of amenities at halting sites, which are often appalling and just left in a dreadful state for decades. It, it's horrible because wider society really don't understand, you know, really don't understand the level of inequalities that traveller community face on a daily basis. I went to Stigo Hospital last week, uh, yes, you can hear me with my chest and stuff, and um, uh, <laughs> the doctor told me I was middle-aged. Now, I'm just gone 29 years of age, like, because my life experience is at, at 12 years less than 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 uh, the general population you know and living in the conditions I've lived in for many many years you know now I, I'm only like 29 as I said and more than likely I'm going to be diagnosed with COPD. What's that? It's um, a chronic uh, lung disorder you know now I am a smoker to be fair I am a smoker but it's because of living conditions as well because if you are a smoker or not a smoker you shouldn't be getting it at the age of 29 years of age do you know what I mean like and then my like there's so many health problems within my own family like my brother has um uh, has to get half his bowel removed my sister also has COPD in the lungs. My mother had it. My mother died at the age of 48 years of age with her lungs, you know, because it's all this environment, not having the heat, like the simple things that people take for granted. Do you know what I mean? That, like, we don't have those. We don't have them. In 2010, uh, travellers in Labry Park and that's living in the caravans first had run and water and Labry Park is the oldest halting site in, in Ireland. It was it was opened up in the 19, uh, 1976. So I just want to pause and actually just repeat what you just said. So you're saying in the halting site where you come from it only got running water in 2010. It only got running water in 2010 and it's the oldest halting site in Ireland. Uh, yes I'm saying the people in the caravans because there's caravans and there's houses where I live, you know, and people in the caravans, not only did they only get running water, they only got access to a toilet, a unit and a shower, like it's a shower, it's a toilet, you know, and they got access to them in 2010. And I'm telling you right now, Naomi, it was the hardest fight to get them units in. Them units were only meant to be temporary, they're still there. As I was finishing up the interview with Eileen, I thanked her and she pointed out that I had said her name wrong. She had only changed it on her social media profiles because she's getting married and she wanted to make sure that the hotel where she's due to have her reception didn't find out that she's a traveller by Googling her. That there's reality for travellers in Ireland. Can I, can I ask you to say that again? So you disguised your name when you were getting married to make sure that your wedding wasn't cancelled by the venue? Yeah, and yes, I changed my name on, uh, on Twitter and on social media in case the hotel would have uh, Googled my name in and my Twitter account and stuff would have come up. But I, I, I had to, I changed it all going back last February for those reasons that I, like, the fear actually so real. Like, these are struggles that, that people don't really even see, you know, that kind of way. They see, oh, oh there's Eileen Flynn. She's a strong feminist woman and blah, blah, blah. But they don't see the like you know hiding your identity I had to do for many years 
You know, this brings up something that I think really gets overlooked in Ireland. Uh, you know, the, just the sheer mental burden that is placed on travellers all the time to either hide their background or be prepared to face discrimination. Uh, like Eileen says, the constant obligation to renounce your own identity just to get on and do normal things, like have a wedding or go to a pub, you know, that has to have a really serious strain on people's mental well-being. Yes, and Ilya told me she's not comfortable going out on her own in case she gets challenged somewhere. Like, she can't be confident that she's not going to be refused from a restaurant or somewhere like that. So she needs to be in a group to deal with that or have an escort of settled people. And that's just appalling in 2019. It's a, it's a real level of oppression that inhibits daily life. There are, of course, valiant people at the forefront of changing this culture of discrimination. For example, after a long, long battle by activists, in 2017, travellers were formally recognised for the first time as a distinct ethnic group. That's a designation that paves the way for legal protection of their culture and their right to reserve it. Organisations for traveller rights have been around since the 1960s, um, including perhaps most famously Pavi Point, uh, which now advocates for the rights of Roma in Ireland too. Uh, these organisations work to improve traveller access to education, employment and healthcare, and basically just try to begin levelling the, the playing field um, between the chances in life for travellers and those for settled people. Like Eileen Flynn, a lot of other travellers have become involved in the recent grassroots political resurgence in Ireland. Like we've mentioned a lot on this podcast, there's a feeling in Ireland right now that lots of old systems can be challenged or changed. And this is a major factor in that. Let's hear now from Julia O'Reilly. I spoke to her recently in Dublin and she explained how she was forced to take matters into her own hands as a child. She secretly rented library books and the audiobook versions of them to teach herself how to read because her primary school had failed to do so. Next stop running for election. I spoke to her in the middle of her campaign to stand as a local representative in County Longford. She always had political ambitions, she told me, but the appearance of Peter Casey had given them urgency. What inspired you to run for a seat on the council? To be quite honest, I think it was the issue with Peter Casey at the time that. But I always had the interest to do it, but that was the push that I needed. I think it really showed really what's going on underneath everything, to be quite honest. And of course, it, it is hurtful for a whole community to be cast to one side constantly in the bad press as well. Do you know when there's so many good people out there? Julia's main focus is on equality of education, which she says is one of the central aggravating factors when it comes to depleted chances in life for travellers. Well, discrimination starts on all levels and it started, I suppose, for me and many of my people at school. That's where it really starts out. So it's the educational system as well. And also when you're going to school, that's when you start to communicate better with other kids and you start to bond. And there's a lack of bond in there because I suppose we would be seen as outcasts or different. So there wouldn't be as much interaction. And those that would be seen to interact with us as children would be slightly outcasts even in their community. So that's one thing. Then the other thing is we're not hired, okay? Um, and there has been um, different percentages that has been brought forward from Ireland who'd want to be married to a traveller, related to a traveller, uh, work with a traveller, which is quite shocking. Not for me per se, but the amount, the percentages was quite high. These are like opinion polls that ask yes, people. Yeah. That would ask them um, those uh, specific questions. And I think, I don't want to quote, you know, a wrong marker, but I think it was something like 86% didn't want to be related. 
you know. And we're, we're living in a very diverse um, society right now, you know, and we need to embrace that and move forward. And um, Ireland... I suppose, was always seen as a very open country, you know, and we have to open that up again. We can't keep closing these barriers off for people, pushing people back when there is chances for us to push forward, and it starts with our children, you know, acceptance, inclusion, all of those things. You know, I went to school, we'll say, mid-80s, and I finished primary school in 1997. So that's not that long ago, you know, and I finished my Leaving Cert in uh, 2001. So again, that's not that far ago, uh, long ago. But um, what's really facing them is these kids are left behind because, you know, in my time, we're segregated. And even now, you you know, you're put at the back of the class. What do you mean segregated? Can you explain that? I suppose not included, really. Do you know what I mean? And, and that goes from, we'll say, um, the playground and so on. And how does that make a child feel inside of themselves? Especially if there's not a big population of travellers in one community either. Mm-hmm. So if we look at it from that kind of point as well. And I suppose being put down at the back of the class, if you don't have parents that can read and write, you're not getting the benefits somebody at the front will. And when they go home, they have the benefits because they have their mothers and fathers to help them. Do you know? Now, there is many, many, many travellers that's overly educated. Obviously, I'm not saying 100% of us is in that state. But there is a huge amount. And if it was only to come forward, it'd be shocking to see how much the system has failed us and why they have failed us. Do you know? Because there is grants there um, uh, and support grants, uh, grants and they always have been there. But were they used appropriately and properly would be my question, do you know, to really look at because this doesn't just come from nowhere. Mm. So when we have education, we have knowledge, it's very handy and easy to sort ourselves out. It's when we don't have it. It brings, like, for example, stress and anxiety when you're filling out forms. Can you imagine what that's like at this day and age to sit there and not be able to fill out a form? Can you imagine the frustration in men not being able to express themselves? And this is what's happening. This would be people with low levels of literacy. Yeah, Yeah. do you know, and that's right across all society. We know that, but there would be maybe 30 years of an age gap where people 20 years ago started this on post or 15 years ago, and they would have been from a different era. And now people my age probably would still be coming forward Mm -hmm. illiterate and it's very sensitive you know because they feel it's their shame when it's not their shame it's something that was handed to them you know so it's not something to be ashamed of it's it's time to take back your right it's time to change that it's in your hands to take that back you know for me um growing up with the education i was delivered with which I took control of when I was 12 years old and started to go to the library. And do you remember cassette tapes? People, <laughs> probably lots listening to this do. And I would bring them home with the books and I would sit there and I would teach myself how to read. And by the time I went into first year, I was, I'd say, maybe 70% better than I was. The same with my spelling skills and stuff like that. And it was not due to my lack. By the time I had it solved, do you know, it, uh, I was a lot more content in myself and I think that's why uh, the secondary was a different battleground for me <laughs> if you get me it, it was a lot kind of fair because I took that back and that's why I'm focusing on education we can take back those things everybody has the ability to change what somebody they feel has took from them and say no do you know what I'm going to take that back today we don't have to be victims we're not victims we're not saying we're victims we're just saying we want this now We need this now. We need this for our children. We need this for ourselves. And it's time to move forward.
And Naomi, I think that's a pretty inspiring note on which to end this. Uh, listeners, um, as well as John Connors, we'll be posting the full interview with Eileen Flynn on our Patreon page if you want to hear more. And I'd really advise it because there's so much more fascinating stuff in those interviews that we haven't been able to fit into this episode. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, it's a great chance to become one. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Join up today to gain full access to our whole archive of half-pint extra content and videos. You'll be supporting the podcast too and making sure that we can keep doing what we do. Thanks again to our sponsor, Biddy Murphy, and thanks to you so much for listening as ever. Slán! Slán! The music on today's episode was Never Can Stop It by Lobo Loco from their album, Ho Hey.